is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and your stories, too. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll put them together, and we'll send them right back out to you over the airwaves. Your stories are as good as any we put together. This next story is a really good one. We love telling you stories about people you should know, but don't, and particularly about innovators in their field. Because there's always a lot of pain in innovation. There's disruption, and in disruption and change, there is often difficulty. And this next person, while I happen to know him well, he's my doctor. Let's throw it to Joey for a remarkable life story. When you think of leaders in innovation, who comes to mind? Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, Steve Jobs? All true giants in American history. Some of those stories that we've told on the show. But how about Cooper? Dr. Ken Cooper. You probably haven't heard his name, but you should have. He's the physician to presidents and CEOs and has helped put astronauts in space. And if that's not enough, his life's work has most likely impacted your life personally. Do you exercise? Has anyone, a loved one, or a doctor ever told you that you should exercise? Well, like it or not, the father of that movement, that way of life, is Dr. Ken Cooper, the father of aerobics. The practice of vigorous exercise to strengthen the heart, lungs, and general health. Aerobics, a term that before Dr. Cooper wasn't even in the dictionary. Today, it is largely accepted in medicine, but not so much in the 1960s. Here's Dr. Ken Cooper on the medical community's response to his book titled Aerobics. And let's just say that the doctors and scientists at the time, especially the older ones, were not too receptive of this revolutionary thing called aerobics. When the book first came out in 1968, I actually saw titles in medical newspaper articles that the street's going to be full of dead joggers. There's more Americans follow Cooper. Every time someone had died while jogging, I heard about it. And I thought for a while I was responsible for that. But then you start putting the figures together. And you see that when people start reading the book, 1968, had 100,000 joggers. By 1984, we had 34 million joggers. And by 1990, we had 35 million joggers. And from 1906 to 1990, heart disease dropped 48%. All of this began while Dr. Ken Cooper was working in the Air Force. Cooper was recruited to create the fitness program for NASA astronauts, where he would refine his big idea, aerobics, the groundwork for preventive medicine, a practice that, quote, focuses on the health of individuals, communities, and defined populations to protect, promote, and maintain health and well-being, and to prevent disease, disability, and even death, a medical practice that America, according to Dr. Ken Cooper, is in dire need of. It's been deplorable that the obesity in our children has gone from 13% in 1990 to 33% overweight or obese at the present time. Our adults have gone from 33% in 1990 to 80% in this, in this country. We haven't done much about it. 76% of the diseases we have are the result of our lifestyle. 45% of cancers are preventable. And we spend twice as much money as anybody else in the world on health care, and we rank 43rd in longevity. Too much care, too late. And so we've got to make those changes. Changes that Dr. Ken Cooper would experience in his youth. 
As a kid, one of Ken's dreams was to become an Olympic runner, and he was pretty darn close, running a 4 minute and 30 second mile in high school. And back then, that was a big deal. But such is the case with many of us, Ken's fitness would take a sharp decline as he would start the next chapter of his life. I got to college for four years and soon discovered that obesity is the most common manifestation of stress. So I jumped from 168 by the time I finished medical school, internship, and I got married. For an eight-year period, I did nothing to eat. I gained up to 204 pounds. I was dying of mental apathy. I was, had to go in the military for two years to pay back the being deferred from the draft. During that was in the Vietnam conflict. But then something happened to change my life. I've been an excellent water skier during my youth. At 29 years of age, I went water skiing for the first time in eight years, trying to ski a slalom course here at Lake Texoma, southern Oklahoma. About halfway through the slalom course, way overweight, deconditioned, I had a cardiac arrhythmia to hit me. And I thought I was having a heart attack. My heart just jumping out of my chest, beating very, very rapidly. I was lightheaded, and I thought I was going to pass out out there on the water. They got me over to the site, got me on to the emergency room. By the time I got to the emergency room, it was all back to normal. I had a very extensive workout back at uh, Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio with my heart, and they couldn't find anything wrong. One thing wrong with me, I was out of shape. And so that shot me back into reality. So I lost the weight within six months. I ran my first marathon a year and a half later. And as you know, I ran for 40 years before I broke my leg snow skiing back in 2004. But what happened to me, Prior to the time I lost that weight, I was hypertensive, I was borderline diabetic, I had no energy. I told my wife I felt like I was dying from mental apathy. That all changed. And I felt much better, physically fitter, less depressed, less of a hypochondriac, improved self-image, much more positive attitude towards life. That happened to me. And I thought, this is a field of medicine that's been sadly ignored, what we can do for ourselves. I was planning on being an ophthalmologist. An orthopedic surgeon. I finished my two years in the military. But this dramatic thing happened to me. I think that was divine because the Lord had a plan for me. And so that changed my life and changed my direction. I transferred from the Army to the Air Force to go into the space program. I thought I'd be a NASA astronaut. Lost the weight, running regularly. Ran the Boston Marathon twice. Became a quote-unquote expert in the Air Force because Master's of Public Health the first year at Harvard School of Public Health. Worked on Doctor of Science next year. Left, went back to the military, and I was the Air Force expert. Worked in designing exercise program for the astronauts. Developed the aerobics program while I was in the Air Force. So that episode with my obesity problem, I was able to change my life, and that probably saved my life. Because the uh, majority of my medical school colleagues graduated in 1956 were the same thing. And back in those days, half of them smoked. And now there's only 20 of us left because I'm afraid that most of those uh, colleagues of mine didn't have that wake-up call that I had at 29 years of age, and they died young in life. And so I think that was a wake-up for me that it saved my life and changed my profession. And more on the life story of the father of aerobics and one of the leaders in preventive medicine in this country, the story of Dr. Ken Cooper continues after these commercial messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Dr. Ken Cooper. And by the way, he had said earlier, the Lord had a plan for me, and my goodness, he did. And Dr. Cooper's a believer and a man of science, and that happens every day here in this great country. Let's pick up where we last left off. We left off with Ken's accident shocking him back to health. An accident that with the additional inspiration from a book he read, would thrust him into a vocation that would help people from around the world live healthier and longer lives. I read a book entitled Halftime. And in this book, Bob Buford said you can be successful, not significant. That was me. You can be successful, but not significant. I was successful in the eyes of the military, but you can't become a general officer unless you have some administrative experience. You've got to leave what you've been doing all those years. I said, I'll gladly finish my 20 years. Let me stay here. I'll get a rank of a colonel. I'll be perfectly satisfied. Let me stay here and continue what I've been doing. I'm having an impact on the military. Until after I left, that the Air Force said the most significant contribution that Air Force Medical Services made to medicine was the aerobics program. A program whose potential was not fully realized at the time. And because of the military's administrative glass ceiling, preventing him from rising through the ranks and making a greater impact, Dr. Ken Cooper decided to take a big risk. I'm getting out. I had no insurance, had no separation pay, had a wife that's pregnant with my son, Tyler, and a five-year-old daughter, moved from, with our dog, Christy, a Cocker Spaniel, we moved like the Grapes of Wrath from uh, San Antonio to Dallas. It hadn't been for Joe McKinney and the Totter Corporation called Saturn Industry back in those days, I'd be here today. Because after still in the military, back in 1968, he read the book, Aerobics, excited about the book so much that he asked me to speak to his corporate executives at Lakeway down near Austin, Texas Lake Travis. And so I spoke to his top executives there, and he was so enthralled with the concept of what I was talking about, the aerobics program and all, and the book, that he said, if you ever decide to leave the military and you want to come to Dallas and start something of your own, let me know. I put that in the back of my mind. But two years later, I came to Dallas, and I thought that I had two successful books, but you don't have any, I had a financial statement worth about $25,000, and that was all. You don't have much money, particularly myself, softback books back in those early days. And so I thought I could raise enough money to build this center, starting with only 8.6 acres. But I went to savings and loans, and they uh, wanted to know what I was going to use for collateral. I thought that was something around the blood pressure obstructed. Sorry, son, we can't help you. And I just finally bummed out. And I went to Joe McKinney and said, Joe, here I am. I, I can't do it by myself. Can you help me? We'll try. And so I needed $1.6 million to buy this property here, the first 8.6 acres of 30 acres we have now. And so he said, okay, put it before his board. We won by one vote. That they loaned me the money, no interest. For six months, I paid no interest. And so I was able to buy the property. And then it took me 11 months downtown before I could move out here, early 1971. But I had to borrow $2,000 a month, pay mother to employees. I lived on savings. So it was tough. And they got to Dallas and uh, went from, from the, fire to, from the fry, from frying pan to the fire because this was very controversial back in those days in 1970, 1971. 
After years of refining and practicing aerobics, and collecting an incredibly large amount of data, Ken's mission, his vocation, would become mainstream. But it certainly wasn't easy to get there. And to fully understand how Dr. Ken Cooper would successfully weather this pushback, we have to understand his relationship with his father, a man who wasn't foreign to such criticism. His father, a Depression-era dentist, was similarly rejected by the science community for subscribing to what was at the time also revolutionary, the nutritional supplementation of vitamins. So my dad was a strong proponent of vitamins, the alphabet tablets. And back in those days, even when I was in medical school, I was taught that vitamin supplementation was worthless. It makes the pharmacist rich and the toilet water very expensive. And you're wasting your time on vitamins. And to some extent, that was true back in those days because we had good food, good diets by and large. We had not a lot of processing foods like we have at the present times. And, and the foods weren't deficient in vitamins like they are at the present time. And that's what's become necessary for us to supplement our diets with vitamins because the processing food, the growing of food, the deterioration of the soil, all these various things. So my father was ahead of his time there. And so he wrote strongly recommend, and I grew up with the supplemental vitamin therapy. I thought he was nuts back in those days because I was being taught to the contrary in medical school. And here, according to Dr. Ken Cooper, is how the medical community responded to his father. They all thought he was a quack because his emphasis on vitamins but they also accused my father of practicing medicine because many times people would come to him with their pyrrhea problems, their dental problems, but changed their diet, changing their diets, and they found that their, that their arthritis improved and their diabetes improved. And so he actually saw other benefits by trying to improve the situation in mouth that had a total body effect. They'd actually accused him of trying to practice medicine without a license. So that was how much innovator my father was. He felt threatened, but he's still the same as I've done. He stuck to what he believed until the time of his death. So my father, without question, was a tremendous impact on my life. But I think what he, more than anything else, what he taught me was discipline. Was my weight, my diet, my exercise, my studying, my good grades in school. All these various things I attribute to my father. Ingenuity, determination, and discipline all qualities passed on by his father to help Ken weather the trials to come. Here's Ken on how the medical community responded to aerobics. Exercise was dangerous. It shouldn't be done. Past 40 years of age, they'd have a heart attack. That was still prominent thinking up until 1989. After collecting data on the effects of exercise and stress testing on health, Ken started to make waves releasing their projected findings that aerobics would not only drastically improve your health, but add six years onto your life. We published that front page, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, American Heart Association said for the first time in all these years that your aerobic capacity is a major coronary risk factor. In 2009, we had uh, 96,000 people, men and women, who had fought it for 20 years. And we predicted, we couldn't prove this yet, but we predicted our men would live 87.5 years, women 90.5 years. That's over 10 years longer than the national average. That was predicted and controversial in 2009. But within the past couple of months, Harvard School of Public Health 
published an interesting study on their physicians and nurses study. 34-year follow 126,000 people in the study. They looked at these risk factors. Proper weight, proper diet, exercising at least 30 minutes, no use of tobacco in any form, and then only minimal alcohol consumption. Five things. And what they showed, those people had, didn't have any good risk factors. The women's average life expectancy was 79.5 years, and men 75.5 years. But they had none of those risk factors. The average life expectancy for men was 87.5 years, women 93.5 years. Almost exactly what I said 10 years earlier. Based on prediction, it's now come full force. That has happened so many things now that I predicted, had criticism of all magnitude that have come full circle. And you're listening to Dr. Ken Cooper. He just happens to be my doctor. But my goodness, the things he's teaching Americans about weight, about diet, about exercise, and people around the world, how to control our health care costs, well, do these things, and how to extend your life and live better and longer. Do those things. Eat right, exercise. Again, at the time, people thought he was crazy. We learned this from innovators in almost every walk of life that we've covered thus far. And 30 years later, look at the data and look at the research. Men living 87.5 years, women 90 plus. More on Dr. Ken Cooper's story here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our free newsletter. And if you do, you'll get our five best stories each week in print and audio form. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Ken Cooper's story continues here on Our American Stories. continue with the story of Dr. Ken Cooper, the father of aerobics and preventive medicine, and one of the leaders of preventive medicine and healthcare around the world, not just the United States. And we left off with Ken receiving great criticism from the scientific community, claiming that exercise and stress testing would not help, but actually harm patients. Ken's findings would prove otherwise, and unfortunately, so would some patients. Back to Ken with the story. A 57-year-old pastor here in town, and he heard me speak at a luncheon, trying to generate patients I'd speak at the Rotary Clubs and things like that. Never got paid for anything. But then he heard me speak and heard me say that if you're over 40 years of age, you should have a stress test before you start a vigorous exercise program. 
because most common first sentiments of your heart's disease is sudden death. People don't bother until it's too late. You heard me say that. And so he came in my little office, way overweight, 57 years of age. I put him on the treadmill. I stopped in two minutes. I said, sir, there's a prominent pastor, a very large church here in Dallas. And I said, sir, you have severe coronary disease. You need to be hospitalized immediately. What do you mean? Your EKG is grossly abnormal. Oh, I saw my physician the other day, did a resting EKG. Said, you don't have any heart disease. That Cooper's a nut. I'll run him out of town. I said, okay, sir. If you're hospitalized for the next 24 hours, I'm washing my hands of your case. Called his physician. I've been practicing medicine now for 62 years. And the only one time I've been cursed up another physician. And that was that physician. What are you doing, you so-and-so? You ought to get back in the Air Force. You're a nut. I'll run you out of town. You're a quack. Oh, okay, sir. I'll accept that. But the fact this man has serious disease needs to be attended to immediately. I don't believe that. That's a bunch of baloney. Okay? I'm washing my hands of his, of his case. And 10 days later, sitting at his desk, he collapsed and died. And the first person to call me was that physician. I didn't know. I didn't know. He's afraid of malpractice because I'm sure he told the family, forget about Cooper, he's a nut. And he was afraid that somebody going to file suit because he told the patient, don't worry about him. We lost a very prominent and successful and talented pastor who could, could be alive today. But fortunately, years later, after many trials and tribulations, the medical community has not only taken their target off of Dr. Ken Cooper's back, but has embraced aerobics and preventive medicine. The Lord's given me a long life to see it happen during my lifetime. So now it's, it's worldwide. And as you can tell, Ken is not only a science guy, but also a God guy. The media tries to tell us that they can't coexist, but Dr. Ken Cooper has reason to believe otherwise. I went to, uh, with my son to climb Kilimanjaro in Africa, 1989. There were six fathers and sons in the group. I knew ahead of time I couldn't uh, spend the whole time because I didn't want to go above 14,000 feet because I had too much time in the Air Force at a high altitude. And I didn't want to have more damage to my brain. So I just planned on going to the 14,000 feet. But going across the border there, going in from Kenya, where we trained for about 10 days to climb that 19,000 foot mountain, and going across the border from Kenya into Tanzania, they wouldn't let me across because I had a stamp in my passport from South Africa because the apartheid and all that. No, no, you can't come into Tanzania. That's not possible. Well, I asked the guide, what's going to cost me? About $35. So I bribed my way to get in to Tanzania. But then after I left the group, I did go to 14,000, but up and back one day. But then the next morning, I was being driven back to the border with a gentleman who didn't speak any English. And so I was getting close to the border. I started really worrying. I'm illegal. I don't have a stamp in my passport to get me through here. And if I find out that I have that stamp from South Africa, they may put me in jail. I mean, I was terrified, literally. And I didn't know what to do. I was by myself there and no one, didn't know anybody. Most of them couldn't speak English. And I was actually standing in line with two people in front of me when all of a sudden this beautiful woman dressed in white came up beside me. Dr. Cooper, I've been waiting for you. Give me your passport. And so I gave her my passport, walked up. She opened the passport in a very profound voice. She said, stamp it, so he couldn't see anything. And then he closed it back up, gave it back to me, the one there. 
I was the only person who saw that, that woman. You think that was happenstance? To my dying days, I believe that was an angel. And that dying day doesn't seem to be any day soon. Dr. Ken Cooper, at 87 years old, is still working harder than ever. My wife has made the comment, don't you wish you had as much a passion about anything as my husband does about what he's doing? And that's true. It's what keeps, I don't have to work anymore. I'm well off. I can retire. I'd be bored sick. Gone for almost three weeks. Beautiful cruise. I could hardly wait to get back. And see, patience. I mean, yesterday I had Charlie Duke here. Only one of four living astronauts who's walked on the moon. He was here yesterday. Been my patient since 19, 1998. So that type of thing, I love my patients. Had a new patient today. I spent an hour and a half with him or longer. And he just couldn't believe I'm spending so much time with this patient. Because what has made successful and why patients stand in line to come, he was an overbook that I took today. Wasn't planning on taking a patient today, but I enjoy it. And he's a top CEO, he's not CEO, he's, but his CEO has all the people coming here. He's the top vice president of his organization. And I had a delightful time with him. That motivates me. I enjoy my work. How many people you know at seven years of age who still enjoy their work? You know, uh, I like what uh, the promotional speaker of uh, uh, Zig Ziglar once said. You don't retire, you refire. I'm still refiring. Dr. Ken Cooper, at 87 years old, still refiring indeed. At 87 years old, exercising, maintaining a healthy diet, and living longer, healthier, and happier. All because he follows his own advice. Dr. Ken Cooper, from helping put astronauts in space to helping society become healthier. For Our American Stories, I'm Joey Cortez. And great job on that, Joey. And thanks also to the Stetson family office in New York. And they work well diligently on this issue of preventive medicine and the Healthcare Impact Foundation, which they manage Well, they're trying to solve this problem for cities and countries around the world because, my goodness, we're chewing up so much of our money as a society on care that comes too little and too late, as Dr. Cooper acknowledged and is working his life uh, to help fix. And also, I'm a patient with Dr. Cooper, and I can only tell you in four months I'm going back. And uh, he does put you through the paces, and you go on this treadmill, and he's, he's like a coach. You're a little afraid of him, and he spends two hours with you. Two hours you're going to have a doctor with you. And at 87, he's on fire, and he is working a full day. And when you go in and you spend some time with him, after that two hours, boom, the next person's coming in, and then the next, and then the next. And he was telling me that his little routine includes a movie with his bride on Saturday nights, a little break on Saturday afternoons. He comes into work on Saturday, too, just to review all of the the patient's files to make sure everything's working right. Uh, This is a guy who loves his work, and Americans love work, and we love talking about Americans at work. Work is so important in our lives, and my goodness, it gives meaning to our lives. I might also do a call out to Bob Buford's book, Halftime, because it changed so many people's lives in this country. If you haven't read it, you should pick it up. And that whole point about having a successful life, but not a significant one, well, it really hit a lot of men in their 50s. And they just changed. They started changing things. And I mean really changing things. Dr. Ken Cooper's story 
here on Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all the things that we do. And again, sign up for our free newsletter. Please get friends to do it too. We'll send you our five best stories each week in audio form and in written form if you prefer to read our stories. But my goodness, it's so much more fun hearing the voices of these people. The legend, the story of Dr. Ken Cooper, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our next story comes from Michael Lella, who shared his dad's incredible story at fee.org. That's F-E-E dot org, the terrific website of the Foundation for Economic Education. And he graciously recorded it for us. If you were 17 and growing up in Milan, Italy in 1943... More than likely, you would have been forced, indoctrinated, and brainwashed into fascism. The dictator of Italy responsible for it, Benito Mussolini, had been in power since 1922. My dad was born in 1926. The voice and image of Il Duce, as Italians were obliged to call Mussolini, were ubiquitous in Italy at the time. Mussolini would ultimately drag the country into the Second World War on the side of Germany's Adolf Hitler. My father is now 92 and lives an hour north of Milan. His name is Pino Lella. If you had to pick a time to be a teenager in Milan, 1943 would have been the worst of choices. In June, as my dad was nearing his 17th birthday, the British began an intensive six-month bombing campaign. It left a third of the city's population homeless, about 400,000 people. My father and his younger brother, my uncle Mimo, narrowly escaped death one night following the bombing of a movie theater. They were there to see You Were Never Lovelier with Fred Astaire and Rita Hayworth, and they witnessed many casualties. My grandfather, Michele, in an effort to keep his boys from becoming victims of the continued bombing, sent my father and uncle to a Catholic boys' school. They were familiar with this school because it was there that they had learned to ski and loved the mountains as children. The school was located high in the Alps, above Lake Como, not far from the Swiss border. It was called Casa Alpina, and it was run by a very courageous priest by the name of Father Luigi Ray. Being the oldest of the boys, my dad was singled out by Father Ray and trained to become an alpine guide. At first, my father knew nothing of the Nazi brutality against Jews and others. In fact, he had learned to respect the Nazi high command, many of whom were customers of his family's leather goods store in Milan. They had occupied Milan as brothers in arms to defend Milan from the British bombing. 
But my dad became brutally aware of the Nazi crimes in September of 1943 when word came of 52 prominent Jews being rounded up by the Nazis and executed in the village of Mena on Lago Maggiore. Their bodies were thrown into the lake for the local citizens to see. It was then that many Italians rebelled and began hiding and protecting their Jewish Italian friends. They formed an underground railroad, a network of escape routes, similar to the one that was developed to save American slaves before and during America's Civil War. One of the network routes led through to Casalpina. This was where their Lello brothers were sent to wait out the bombing of Milan. For nine harrowing months while at Casalpina, from the fall of 1943 through June of 1944, the month of his 18th birthday, my father guided many Jewish refugees across the Alps into neutral Switzerland to escape Italy. He risked his life evading Nazi patrols, surviving avalanches and grenade attacks. He was robbed by bandits disguising themselves as anti-fascist partisans. He often carried the weak and the elderly on his back in the dead of winter over the top of the Alps, some of the world's most rugged mountain terrain. Some had embarked on this journey with my father in such a way that they wore street shoes, not exactly hiking gear for the Alps in below zero temperatures. At the time, my dad simply did what he was told to do and thought little of it. Father Ray instructed him to take people to safety, and so he did it. He knew it was dangerous, of course, but even to this day, he doesn't think of what he did as heroic. He had faith in doing the right thing, and such a high regard for Father Ray that he would have done anything for him. The missions gave him an identity, a meaningful purpose, and an opportunity to lead. And like many 17-year-olds with reckless abandon, he thrived on the excitement and adventure of it all, at least while it lasted. In June of 1944, my father turned 18, the age at which young Italians were drafted by the state into the military. He had two choices. He could join Mussolini's fascist army and quite likely end up on the Russian front. His other option was to conscript with the German army. His aunt and uncle had connections that might land him a secure and hopefully a safer job in the organization Todd. This was the armament and the construction division of the Third Reich. For his safety, but against his wishes, Pino's father and mother talked him into enlisting in the German army. Dad reluctantly donned the military uniform with a Nazi swastika. What happened next was almost unbelievable. Through a series of extraordinary circumstances, including his wounding during an Allied bombing raid, my father was ordered back to Milan to convalesce for two weeks. Then, with a little help from family and his ability to speak French and drive a car, he landed a position as the personal driver and confidant for one of Hitler's most mysterious officers in the German high command. He was a man so powerful in Italy that he responded directly, personally, and only to Adolf Hitler. His name was General Hans Lairs, the plenipotentiary of the Italian sector for organization taught. To Pino's aunt and uncle, his assignment as a driver for such a powerful figure was a serendipitous opportunity of a lifetime. 
it could help change the direction of the war. They understood the importance of it because they were already working in secret for the Allies and the Italian resistance. The kind of information their nephew would now have access to could be critical for the fight against the Germans. My father, still a teenager, as a new and personal driver for this top Nazi commander, became a spy known to the Allies as the Observer. For the last year of the war, while driving General Lairs around northern Italy, my dad learned the locations of tank traps, landmines, ammunition tunnels, and every fortification between Florence and Milan. He observed the Germans' main defensive positions. He secretly documented troop movements. He took notes and photos. And he fed mounds of that crucial information to the Allies by using Uncle Albert's shortwave OSS radio. More than once, my father was nearly caught, which would likely have led to his torture and execution. But he kept the trust of an unwitting General Layers. My dad personally witnessed the Nazi persecution of Jews, as well as the working to death of slaves from many faiths and nationalities in work camps, hoping and dreaming that one day he could testify against those responsible. At midnight on April 24th, 1945, upon orders from the resistance, my father single-handedly arrested General Hans Lairs and delivered him to the American command, which was led by 5th U.S. Army Major Frank Nabel. For the next five days, he became Major Nabel's personal guide and translator, at last discarding his uniform and the Nazi swastika. On April 28th, Pino and Major Nabel witness a hideous moment in Italian history the public desecration of Mussolini's body in Piazzale Loreto amid the hysteria and fanaticism of the frenzied Italian mobs. Hitler killed himself in Berlin two days later. With the deaths of the two fascist dictators, my father thought he was finished with the war. But in fact, the war wasn't quite finished with him. In early May, the famous Brenner Pass through the Alps was the most dangerous corner of Europe. The German army was retreating from Italy through the pass into Austria. Thousands of Nazi troops who refused to surrender were on the run, being chased down and cut off by Italian resistance fighters and the U.S. Army. In the midst of this, my father was asked if he would do America a favor and accept the final mission. The Americans asked my dad to be a guide one last time, leading one final escape from Italy. His mission was to drive an important, high-ranking Nazi from American custody to the Austrian border, where he could safely be interrogated for the intelligence he possessed about Hitler's Reich. Who was this top general my dad was enlisted to escort to safety? None other than the very man he had driven for, the very man he had arrested and turned over to the Allies just weeks before, General Hans Lairs. Distraught and tormented over the events of the last week of the war, my father accepted that final mission. You can only imagine the conversation in the car between my dad and General Lairs. By the evening of that same day, May 3rd, 1945, my dad delivered General Lairs to the Americans awaiting for him on the Austrian border. 
That final escort ended my father's involvement in World War II. But like many of that greatest generation, the experience and the weeks preceding the war's end continued to haunt him for the rest of his life. And to hear the rest of Pino Lella's remarkable story, pick up Mark Sullivan's best-selling book about him, Beneath a Scarlet Sky. And thanks to the son, Michael, again, who shared his dad's incredible story at feed.org. Great job, as always, on this Alex and Joey. Michael's story, his dad's story, a great World War II story here on Our American Stories. our American stories and this next story comes from Lily Danzinger and this piece was originally written in psychology today for her mother and father I was eight the first time my father and I spoke about heroin he was working on a sculpture sitting cross-legged on the floor with his curly hair hanging down over his face I stood at his bookshelf, perusing the thick art volumes. Tucked between the pages of one, I found a piece of tinfoil folded into a square and marked with small circular burns. I'd never seen one like it, but I had a hunch this peculiar object had something to do with his drug habit. I asked, Papa, what's this? He frowned in the same way he would when I declined to try out a new drawing technique but I knew I wasn't the source of his disappointment this time. Some tense seconds ticked by before he finally answered, That's from doing drugs, but it's from a long time ago. It must have gotten lost in that book. There was another pause, and guilt must have overcome him because he then confessed that the tinfoil square wasn't actually from that long ago, though he assured me that he had stopped using drugs again and was doing better this time. Smelling of tobacco and plaster, he planted a kiss on the top of my head and went back to chiseling a block of wood. I knew from a young age that my parents were heroin addicts. It doesn't take the world's smartest kid to figure out the purpose of a methadone clinic or to decipher loud, tearful arguments about how it's time to stop, muffled by only a thin wall when you're supposed to be asleep. Growing up where and when I did, in New York's East Village and San Francisco's Mission District in the early 90s, their predicament was common. Plenty of people were slowly caving in on themselves, their skin growing sallow and their eyes becoming vacant as they were eaten alive from within by drugs. But despite knowing that my parents struggled with addiction, I had only a patchy understanding of what that meant, either for them or for the hollow-eyed strangers on the street and in the clinic waiting room. I'd picked up enough from movies and foreboding commercials to know that drugs were bad for you, but I understood it in the same abstract way I knew broccoli was good for you. I couldn't really differentiate between my parents' drug problem and all their other grown-up problems, like making the rent and keeping the house clean. In the years after the tinfoil incident, after my parents split up and my mother successfully kicked her heroin habit, my father and I had an ongoing coded dialogue about his efforts to do the same. 
He would tell me that he was healthy, which was his way of saying that he was clean. He couldn't bring himself to be completely frank about his struggle, but he knew that I worried about it and he wanted to reassure me. The fact that he told me how he was doing, no matter how euphemistically, made me trust him. It made me feel even more invested as I rooted for him from the sidelines of this invisible battle. I believed in him so intensely that I was probably the only person who didn't immediately assume drugs were involved when he died. I was 12 and living in upstate New York with my mother. He had gone to live in a cabin in the Northern California Redwoods to be in nature and away from drugs. He died in his sleep. Even though I was across the country when it happened, I felt certain that my father was clean because of the postcards he'd sent me, always mentioning how well he was doing and how he couldn't wait for me to visit so we could camp out under the ancient majestic trees. The autopsy report eventually confirmed that there was no heroin in my father's blood when he died. The coroner couldn't determine a cause of death, which left many open questions, but I had the answer to the one question that mattered to me. As far as I knew, the only way heroin could become fatal was through an overdose, and I took the absence of the drug in his system to mean that his death was unrelated to his many years of drug abuse. I felt vindicated. I spent the next decade mourning my father, telling everyone what a great artist he'd been and how much he'd taught me about life, literature, and language, that trendy was a bad word, for instance, and overusing like makes a person sound ignorant. My father was the beloved lost, blameless as a saint. While I sprayed the anger I felt over his loss everywhere else, blasting it like buckshot from a shotgun at my mother, teachers and classmates, and later at truant officers and cops. I was furious at the world for taking him from me. When I hit my 20s, I realized that I didn't actually know that much about my father beyond my rosy memories, so I started reaching out to his old friends. The hazy view of heroin I'd had as a child became sharper and more detailed. I learned that he'd been using it with far more regularity and for a longer period of time than I'd ever known. I eventually came to face the obvious. The damage done by poisoning yourself for almost two decades doesn't instantly reverse the moment you stop. A 43-year-old man's organs don't just shut down inexplicably. There may not have been heroin in his system when he died, but that didn't mean heroin wasn't the cause of his death. I started to see his death not as some freak occurrence, but as something he let happen. And I was furious. Letting myself rage at him, at the memory of him, was like releasing a breath I'd held for almost 20 years. As a child, I'd thought of addiction as a big bad demon my parents were fighting to escape so that we could all live happily ever after. Now, I had to wonder how they let themselves get into that position in the first place. How could they have looked at the peaceful face of their sleeping child in one room, then closed the door and gotten high in another? My father was a good parent in many ways. He read me Grimm's fairy tales and Greek myths, cherished my every piece of art, and encouraged me to voice my thoughts loudly and clearly. But all the while, he failed at his number one duty to me, to do everything he could to make sure that he'd stay in my life. The central requirement of being a parent is to be present. All the rest is a matter of style and degree. You can't be a good parent or even a bad parent if you're not there at all. He hadn't really died by accident, I came to realize. He'd committed a suicide by neglect, like a lie of omission. In a way, feeling my anger at him has lessened its power over me. The story we often hear about the loved ones of addicts, a pat tale of anger resolving into forgiveness, 
doesn't acknowledge the complexity of feelings layered upon each other, all of them shifting continually with time. I don't know if or when I'll ever fully forgive my father, but that's okay. Anger hasn't diminished my love for him or my appreciation of everything that was wonderful about him. It's just made him feel more real. It's let me see him with bracing clarity, not only as the adored father I lost too soon, but as a flawed human being who I can now mourn more fully and honestly. And what a beautiful and thoughtful piece. Thank you, Lily, for what you wrote, and thank you for sharing it with us. Lily Danziger's story, her mother and father's story, here on Our American Stories. She saw both her lives flash before her eyes. She didn't even have time to cry. She was so scared. She threw her hands up in the This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Carrie Underwood's rendition of Jesus Take the Wheel. I know you're wondering why are you calling it a rendition. Well, like, it isn't often the case, and more often the case than not in country music. Sometimes in rock and roll, but often in country music. Someone else writes these songs. And we love to tell the story behind the story of songs anyway here on Our American Stories. We love music. We spend a lot of time on it. Because, well, we all love music. And some of the stories we've done behind the story of a song, Light My Fire, where Ray Manzarek walks us through how that song got made. It's just terrific. Gimme Shelter. You can't believe what brought that song together and made it stick. And another brick in the wall, you hear from Roger Waters himself explaining how that song came together. And then my personal favorite, Kenny Chesney's There Goes My Life, Wendell Mobley, who wrote the song, tells the story about how that song came to be. We hear the songwriter sing it, and then ultimately, of course, we hear Kenny Chesney's take. And in this particular case, it wasn't Carrie who wrote this. And again, Carrie Underwood, as you all know, was a big star out of American Idol in 2005, and she's gone on to just do such amazing and extraordinary work in every venue, including Broadway Live, which he did on television. She did The Sound of Music, and it was unbelievable. Uh, I think Julie Andrews was like, oh my goodness, that girl can do it. And it was live, which is no duck walk. So this song, Jesus Take the Wheel, was written by a guy named Brett James. And here he is talking about becoming a songwriter, his first guitar, and writing his first song. The very beginning for me started in Waco, Texas. I was a student at Baylor University. Any, any Baylor, I sit there. And uh, I'd grown up singing in church and, and being around music. I came from a really musical family, but I didn't play an instrument. I didn't, never thought about writing songs. I'm from Oklahoma, as is Ryan and Randy Grimmett. Any Okies out there? Um, 
And growing up in Oklahoma, probably like where a lot of you guys are from, you know, becoming a songwriter is not on the list of professions that they give you when you enter high school. And so I didn't know my job existed, and so I didn't know that I could, I could go after it. Um, when I was 19, I asked for a, a guitar for Christmas. My mom bought me an $80 pawn shop guitar. It was a, called a Lincoln. It was a, nobody's probably ever heard. I'd never heard of a Lincoln. The action was about an inch and a half off the strings. I do remember that. <laughs> I, I then bought immediately uh, John Cougar Mellencamp's Scarecrow songbook because I already knew the album, and I thought, well, I can... Most of these songs have three chords in them. I can probably learn these. So that's how I started learning guitar. And for me, the next step in the process was very simple. Uh, as soon as I learned those three chords, for whatever reason, it seemed natural for me to write a song. Um, and that wasn't something I even thought about or planned on. It just, I know these three chords. Why don't I write something that, that some girl down the street might like? And uh, so that's how it, that was kind of the beginning for me. And that's how it starts off for so many musicians. Self-taught, we learned this about Irving Berlin, taught himself everything from scratch. Brett talks about when he was a failed recording artist, the time he was, and decided to finally just let go. And it was then that he found eventual success. Sometimes something just pops into your head and, and don't ever, for me, it's like, don't ever count it out, you know? And, and no, no matter how simple you think it might be, sometimes simplicity wins the day. Quick lesson for me might to be, you know, sometimes when you let it go, sometimes when you're not pushing so hard, that's when, that's when kind of God just takes over. I, 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 my story is I was in Nashville, real quickly, uh, I got offered a record deal, my first trip to Nashville with Arista, was on Arista for seven years. Seven years later, all that went away, I was a failed recording artist and I went back to medical school. And I started back to medical school on September 1st and I was 30 years old and going to go be a doctor, but I was still writing songs. Um, I'd given up my dream of being a songwriter, of being a, you know, I just, that's okay. That, I, I, get, I had a great shot, and, and it wasn't going to work out for me. Uh, September 1st, I started med school. September 4th, Faith Hill cut one of my songs on the Breathe album. <laughs> I ended, <Okay>. up, <laughs> ended up with 33 more cuts in that nine months while I was going to med school every day. And the reason was because I kind of let go. I'd been in Nashville trying to push and trying to force and trying to fit my what I did into their square hole, you know, or my round songs into their square hole. And, you know, when I went back to med school, I said, screw it. I got a job. You know, I'm going to be a doctor. I can write whatever the heck I want, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write stuff I like. And I sort of let go. And that freedom that he found leaving his dream got him his dream. Go figure. And that happens a lot, too. Here, Brett James talks about writing the song we've been talking about, Jesus Take the Wheel, followed by his performance at an ASCAP songwriter showcase of the first verse and the chorus. You got a blank sheet of paper looking at you, and what are we going to put on it? And, uh, and you know, so we kind of started tossing around some thoughts, and Gordy said, you know, I got, this, I got one idea for a, a title. It's called When Jesus Takes the Wheel. And I immediately laughed. I thought, well, that's about the silliest thing I ever heard. And Hillary kind of chuckled, and we kind of, Tried to get our heads around that for a minute and moved on to something else. What do you think? Well, let's, let's talk about some other titles. That one, I'm not sure about that one. But fortunately, uh, 10 or 15 minutes later, we came back to uh, When Jesus Takes the Wheel and uh, wrote a little song about a girl driving to Cincinnati and uh, ended up being called Jesus Take the Wheel. She was driving last Friday on her way to Cincinnati on a snow-white Christmas Eve. Going home to see her mama and her daddy with her baby in the backseat 
Fifty miles to go when she was running low on faith and gasoline. It'd been a long, hard year. She had a lot on her mind and she didn't pay attention. She was going way too fast. Before she knew what she was spinning on a thin black sheet of glass. She saw both their lives flash before her eyes. She didn't even have time to cry. She was so scared. She threw her hands up in the air. Jesus, take the wheel and take it from my hands. Cause I can't do this on my own. I'm letting go. So give me one more chance and save me from this road. Jesus, take the wheel. And that's the first verse and chorus. And my sister's a professional songwriter, and she's always sent me snippets or lines that she wished she'd written. And the one on this one was 50 miles to go. She was running low on faith and gasoline. And those are little descriptors of that character and the thing that person's going through. It wasn't just that she hit a patch of ice. Her life had hit a patch of ice. And that's why she was asking Jesus to take the wheel. Now, you also heard Brett singing, and you could hear clearly why maybe Brett didn't make it as the singer-songwriter. But his God-given talents were in the writing, and my goodness, God-given talents of Carrie Underwood as a singer come to meet these two talents, and here is Carrie Underwood's take on this great song. When she made it to the shoulder and the car came to a stop She cried when she saw that baby in the backseat sleeping like a rock And for the first time in a long time She bowed her head to pray She said I'm sorry for the way I've been living my life I know I've got to change So from now This is Our American Stories, Brett James, his story, and the story of how Jesus Take the Wheel came to be, and Carrie Underwood takes us away.
This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories of every kind. And one of our favorite things to do is to talk about history. And always are these days in history are sponsored by Hillsdale College. We also have done a lot of commencement speeches, including some from Hillsdale itself. We've never done a convocation speech before, but this one was so unusual and so good that we have to bring it to you. And it's by the president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Larry Arn, and you're not going to hear a convocation speech like this anywhere in the United States. Here's how he started things. Have any mothers cried yet? Would you hold up your hand? Yeah, okay. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Hillsdale College is a bad news first kind of place. There are 394 of these freshmen. That's 24 over the goal. And that means many of you can be spared. (laughs) See? How was that, Dustin? Yeah. (laughs) We're starting out hard here today. Uh, You come from the largest applicant pool we've ever had, and you have the average entering standardized, the highest we've ever had by a smidgen over last year. So on the average, you're really smart, which is fully compatible with profound ignorance. And then Dr. Arn took a pause, a long one actually, and awkward for most speakers, but not this college president because he was pondering what next to say, looking down at his notes, thinking about them, and then delivered his message from the heart about the purpose of a liberal arts education. But what is it to be like this? The young, seeking to do something that has very little in a direct way to what they're going to do for a living, come and study with people who are older and wiser, and they all learn together. That is the phenomenon. I've had people, you know, we have, I forget now, I think we have a 1.5 million online students. And, in, you know, and it's growing faster last year than the year before. Lord knows how many there'll be, right? But there's about 1,500 of us here. And there's about 160 faculty sitting right there, the most important of the professional people here, by the way. And that ratio and the expense and trouble of all of this, you freshmen, you're about to get acquainted with the trouble. And then when the trouble really comes upon you, then you're going to call mom and dad and they're going to get acquainted with the trouble. Then, then why? Why that? Well, it comes out, we have come here to think in exactly that way that is a synonym for talking. Because, you know, animals show every sign of thinking They just don't talk, and we do. And that thing that goes on in our soul that makes the kind of thinking we can do, that goes on between us when we converse, and that means we were made to think together. And especially if you think about things that are ultimate things, things that will last your whole life, and you're 18, and you don't know any better than that boy back there what you're going to do with your life or what's going to happen to you, right? But what you know is there are some things you need to know because everyone needs to know them if they are to live a rich and happy and significant life. And we are here to do that. That's what's hard. It's joyful. 
You'll love it, but also hard. Get your boots on. Places here are scarce. They're for the willing and the able, and those are both very high qualifications. You know, it sounded as if Dr. Arn were speaking before a group of incoming Marines. In a sense, it's like that at Hillsdale College. Very high standards, a lot's expected, and it's going to be good, but it's going to be hard. And not enough young people hear both of those things when entering universities across this country. And then we got to the guts of Dr. Arn's speech, and again, a speech you're never going to hear in any college by any college president in America. Dr. Arn talking about things like being good and what it means. We're going to study our way up toward heaven. That's the thing that happens here. If you just think you want to be an excellent person, surely you want that. Of course you want that. You can't help but want it. Well, you'll find out that as you improve yourself, you're reaching upwards, not down. And so before we get to heaven, the road to heaven involves being good. And I'm sorry to inform you that you're going to have to learn to define that word. And if you can do it right now, I'll give you five bucks. Especially if you'll give me ten if you can't. You have to be morally good. That means what? Just, courageous, and moderate. Truthful. All of those things, right? You have to behave yourself here. You'll find that we don't govern the place mostly by rules. There are some rules. But they're not important because, for example, if somebody ever gets in enough trouble to get into my office, which happens once or twice every other year, something like that, then I always, I, I can never remember what rule they violated. I always say, you remember where you are? Only once in seven, 17 years, I think we've had the honor code for 14 years, only once have I ever got out a student's honor code and asked him to verify his signature. But I said, you know, and I, I just said, did you sign that document? And he just, you know, big old football player boy, and he just got really tiny. And I said, what did you do again? And of course, he was deeply ashamed. I didn't have to do anything to him. He kept begging me to punish him. I said, I'm not here to punish you. I'm here to be your friend. And Dr. Arn then dug in on the importance of the honor code and its connection to being good and the connection to everything that happens at Hillsdale College. Take a listen. So you have to be good. And you promise to be. And I just want you to understand the significance of the honor code, because what it means is we govern this place by goals, and goals are intrusive. That means you have agreed to them. That means you can't violate the code without getting caught, because you catch yourself. Duh. And that means we're not really very concerned about your behavior. It'll be fine, except when it's not, and it won't take long to fix it. That boy, by the way, when I read, I made him verify his signature on his honor code. I'm a reference for him now. He came back to my office twice to beg me to punish him, and I said, you just go put this right. And he said, how do I do that? And I said, I don't know. I didn't make that mess. It was a kind of bad thing he did, and I said, you know, I'm angry enough at you because you spoke ill to one of my staff members, a lady, and you did something to a girl that you didn't like. 
wasn't that bad, but it was bad. I said, uh, you know, if you don't put this right, I'm going to erase this time from your life, and you'll never be able to come back here. I'll ban you for 40 years till you're dead. <laughs> so, you know, I was really working him over. But I didn't have to do any of that. Why? He longs to be good. And we all do. And this is what they do there at Hillsdale College. It's magical, actually. I'd, I'd urge anyone within listening distance or even not to go there and see the special things they do. And what a teaching moment for Dr. Orn. Just go put this right, he told that young man. Live up to the honor code you swore to uphold. I love what he said. You can't violate the code because you'll get caught. You'll catch yourself. Fantastic stuff. When we come back, the speech you'll only hear at Hillsdale College, because in the end, it's the only college in America, but for possibly West Point, Annapolis, that teaches this stuff, the important stuff. The beautiful things that matter in life. Being good. Being a good and excellent person. This is Lee Habib. Hillsdale College's story. The convocation before the freshman class this year. And Dr. Larry Arn. More of all of it after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the convocation speech at Hillsdale College by Dr. Larry Arn, and this is about as good a speech as any kid could hear in any college, only Hillsdale's not any college, and it only makes sense at Hillsdale College because the college is, well, it's put together to reinforce all of the values and all of the things that Dr. Arn's talking about in this convocation speech. Let's continue. There'll be these obstacles. You're young. Your body is stronger every day. Pleasures mean more to you with every passing day. You are made that way. The pleasures indicate something to you that's worth having almost always, although of course you want too much of it or in the wrong time and way. You have to learn to listen to those, but they cannot govern you. And then intellectually, it's going to be hard. Because I promise you're going to discover that you can't say a sentence about the things you know the most about without some learned person asking you what those words mean, and you'll find that you don't know. And it's like starting over again, and it's hard. And then everybody's made A's. What's the average grade point average here? Three nine, three nine five, or something like that? Forget that. That's over, right? I think last year the average freshman grade point average was 2.9. And so you'll cry and say, I've always made A's. And we'll say, okay, sure. This is college now. That's different. Right? And and you'll think, I'm going to despair. That's when you need assertiveness and courage. And you must have those. You must work on those. And everyone here will help you with that. No one out there, and I won't tell you who they are today, but there's about eight guys down there 
that are and girls that are just ogres about grading. I mean, they just it's just it's they could be prosecuted. <laughs> and yet their classes fill up, right? Everybody down there is really bad, and there's a few of them that are just worse, you know. <laughs> and and they care deeply, and they will help you, right? You must not despair. It is a failure of courage to do that. If you start looking like somebody from the scene of The Walking Dead, which we will all look to look like in the first week of December, right? Then if you start doing that too early, get help. We'll help you. But then there's this other thing. It's the opposite side, and you mustn't do this either. And remember when I say you mustn't, you mustn't for two reasons, because you've agreed not to, or you will by tomorrow night, or else you'll be going home, right? Or more than that, I say we all need this. You need this. And we all need it. I love when he looks around at all those kids and says, what's the average out there, 3.9 in high school? Forget that. That's over. Beautiful. Let's listen to more Dr. Arn's speech to the incoming freshmen. It is hard to sit for hours at a time and concentrate, especially when you're nagged that it's too much and you can never really get it. You'll need your courage. But then when you get it and you start putting things together and you start articulating things that you didn't know, and you be, then begin to get a glimpse that these things are beautiful. Oh, you'll have this thing that'll happen and you'll, and you'll sit back and you'll say, that was satisfying to learn for its own sake and it will never stop. You will encounter a pleasure most self-sufficient and abiding. And when you get that, you must not be cocky about it. You must work harder and get it more. And then you'll be able to give it to others for the rest of your life. And then you can save the world. Which is what we do here. Dr. Arn then addresses the comparison between Hillsdale and all of the crazy things that are happening on campuses across the country where kids are essentially doing their own thing. If you think that you've come here because you want to do whatever you want to do, well, we've got 2,499 competitors, and they'll all let you do that. You've just chosen the wrong one. Can't have happened by chance. Well, what are they, what are they doing, right? They tell these kids that there isn't anything valuable to know, or they tell them that their consciousness, which is a term of art in historicism, is formed by their gender and their race and their class and all these background things, right? And then they demonstrate and they take over the president's office. Well, we have no threat of that here. I only bring it up as a positive thing because that's going on in the world. And it hasn't for most of the history of this college, which is almost 175 years old. We can learn from that. You see, what are the arguments they're actually making? And they do constitute an overwhelming and stark alternative to what we do here. And so we can look at that and say, what is the argument that's actually there? What are they doing? Like, you know, the way it looks to me, of course, I'm an old man, and, you know, so very learned and all that. 
Uh, I always, you know, first time I saw a bunch of them marching in a place where I got a lot of my education, I was sitting with my wife and we watched in the news, and they were taking over a building that I know, and they were demanding changes to the curriculum. And they're 19 years old. And I said, you know, somebody needs to stop those kids and ask them to define the word curriculum. Because <laughs> they've never completed one, right? How would they know? It's hard for us to do that. Well, my point then is, we are an alternative that is very different. And we get to go through the hard job of making a case for that under pressure when we defy the examples. If you got the crazy idea that you were going to take over one of the college buildings, I'll just tell you that that's a simple problem. Um, the college property belongs to the college. Who does the college belong to? All nonprofits and colleges are a, a singularly important and dignified form of that, along with churches the most. All nonprofits belong to their beneficiaries. This college doesn't belong to you, and it doesn't belong to me, and it doesn't belong to the board. It belongs to the beneficiaries, and you freshmen are about to become our immediate beneficiaries and for four years. But the beneficiaries also include all those who come after you. The board has its authority because it acts for them. The faculty has its authority because it possesses the knowledge to pass on the, the things that the college was founded to pursue, which are four and which you have to learn what they are. Because you have to serve them, you see. I'm saying this isn't ours. We are here to protect and preserve it and pass it on. We will keep our humility about that. Then Dr. Warren transitioned away from addressing the students and to addressing this other important part of their community. Finally, parents. You two are part of our partnership. The immediate blessing for you that we do not take any money from the government is we can send you your child's grades, and we are going to do that. Sometimes they don't like it. And uh, I have a device I've used. I've only had to use it once. There was a, a, a girl, a favorite girl of mine. She's a school teacher now, Raylene Kucinich. And she protested about that. And she said, Dr. Arn, I've worked all summer and all time here and paid for my own college. Why would you send it to my parents? So I had the envelope readdressed to the parents of the very mature and independent Raylene Kucinich. <laughs> she thinks that's funny now, too. She didn't at the time. If you come for Parents Weekend, which you must, hundreds come, it's crazy, it's not, nowhere else like it, we will all sit, we all think it's kind of cheesy but also inspiring, and we will sit at tables with little name tags and people ring bells and you get 10 minutes with every one of these if your kids got, got this. And I do that too, we all do. And that means you're in the mix, you're part of this place, and you're about to take a pledge to say so. Now there's bad news that comes from this too. Because you have to look at this in the old-fashioned way. In the very unlikely event that we have a dispute with your child, you are on our side. For sure, immediately, and without any question. You can find out later who's wrong, and then you can switch sides if you want to. You won't. Because why? Because if you've got a complaint, we'll listen to it. And you know, we're not bad at this. It's what we do for a living. We will include you. We are all on the same side. And any time we have a real dispute going on among us, we try to settle that right away, because that's not what colleges do. 
What they do is argue about things they all love. And here's how Dr. Arn closed things off. I said to the provost, of course, a friend of mine, as we were all processing in here, because we get to stand up there and watch the faculty come in. And it's fun, you know. We're all excited today. This is a cool day. And I said to him, you know, it's fun. Also, it's holy, isn't it? This is one of the most serious things that human beings can do. We're starting today. May God guide, bless, and protect us in the work. Welcome. And there you have it, a speech you'll not hear anywhere else in this country, but at Hillsdale College. And by the way, I have the honor of teaching there two weeks a year. And more importantly, I have the honor of studying there. I crash those classes, and it's fun because the people there expect so much of you. And they demand it. And everybody enjoys it. And by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale because you never had this experience, Hillsdale can come to you through their terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. And Hillsdale College, the place to go to study all the things that matter in life, that are beautiful in life. Thanks, Dr. Larry Arn, for that convocation. And thanks for the support. This is Lee Habib. And this is Our American Stories. Stories.